The purpose of a trial is to determine the truth. The purpose of a trial is to determine the truth, to bring forward witnesses, to bring forward evidence, and by careful evaluation to determine the truth, and then in the light of the truth to make a verdict. And either to convict or not to convict, and then to mete out a punishment in keeping with the conviction. But not all trials are just in this fallen world. One of the most powerful examples in literature of an unjust trial, to my mind, is found in Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird and the unjust trial of Tom Robinson, who in this story was a, a, a black man falsely convicted of sexual assault in Jim, the Jim Crow South. And he's brought up on these false charges. And the, as the trial goes on, it becomes clear. The charges are false, but the jury's still going to convict him. And in the end, he is convicted and then is, is shot trying to escape the night after his conviction. And it's a, it's a sobering story in a lot of ways. And it's an unjust trial. But what's interesting is that despite the injustice of the trial, the truth is still revealed through the events, even of an unjust trial. As you follow the events of the, the trial, right at the, the high point of that book, what begins to come out is, well, first of all, the truth of the cancer of racism in that community. Right? It goes on display in a way that only an unjust trial could show. The, the truth comes out. Not only the truth of the, that sin problem in that community, but also the, the character of certain individuals. You get Atticus Finch, the defense lawyer who stands up in defense of Tom Robinson despite the opposition of the community. And in the light of this fiery furnace, right, of this unjust trial, his, his character, his honorable character shows forth. Even an unjust trial can be an instrument to reveal the truth. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our passage this morning. You can turn with me, if you'd like, to Mark, rather, Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, and we're going to, to take a look this morning at verses 53 through to the end of the chapter. This is Jesus on trial. Jesus on trial unjustly as we'll see. And yet at various points, we're going to see the truth revealed even in an unjust trial. Mark 14, beginning in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, 
We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would reveal to us the truth, the truth about who Jesus is and the truth about who we are, that you'd uncover the dark places of our hearts, expose them to the light of Jesus, that you'd be at work among us by your spirit, you'd grow us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' trial revealed the truth. That's our big idea this morning. Jesus' trial revealed the truth. And we're going to see four key truths that are revealed over the course of this trial. First, we'll see a truth revealed about the nature of the trial itself. Then we'll see the truth revealed about who Jesus is. The truth revealed about who the Pharisees really are and what they were really doing. And finally, the truth revealed about who Peter was. The truth about the trial, about Jesus, about the Pharisees, about Peter. First, the truth about the trial. And we've seen the storm brewing for this trial over the, the last couple of weeks. We heard first how the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the religious leaders had decided this is enough. They had no more arguments to bring against Jesus. He shot them all down. And it was time they decided to be rid of this menace once and for all. Um, over and over again, he'd threatened their ministry. He'd 
He'd called them on the carpet for their sins, for their hypocrisy. And the people who were following Jesus, not them. It was a threat to their position. And they said, okay, enough is enough. We've read how they begin to plot with Judas, how they laid their plans, and then how Judas betrayed them in the garden. And now the, the plan's coming to fruition. Finally, Jesus and his opponents are going to meet face-to-face in a, in a court of law. And the truth is going to come out here about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all, all these religious leaders, and about who Jesus is. But first, we're going to see the truth come out about the nature of this trial. Already we saw clues last week that this was not all on the up and up. The arrest was made in the middle of the night, which is a tyrant's move, right? If you make illegal arrests or, or any kind of arrest that you don't want peop- the public to scrutinize, you do it during the night. And now they move from a, a night arrest to a night trial immediately. Verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Not a public trial, a private trial in the middle of the night. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Peter's an interesting character in, in this account. He's, he's not in the room with the trial, but he's outside. And he's going to undergo a, a kind of trial, a kind of testing of his own. And, and Peter, the truth about Peter will be revealed as we go along. So keep him in the back of your mind. But now we, we move back inside into the light of the room here in the chief priest's chambers, verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. This council is called the Sanhedrin, and it was the, the, the ruling board of the Jewish elites. And on this council, we've got representatives from all the groups that attacked Jesus at various times, Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and priests, This is the ruling council of the religious elites. And what they were seeking was testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And what's interesting, here at the outset, we're told they found none. Now, if this had been a fair trial, it would have ended here, right? A a good judge doesn't even allow uh, uh, a case to come to court if there's if there's no, or a good prosecutor, right, wouldn't even bring a case if they don't have any evidence. But it's interesting, they've brought Jesus, and now they're looking for the evidence, right? Chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. And again, a, a good trial would end here. There's no evidence. But already we're seeing the true nature of this trial. This is not a fair trial. This is not a trial where people are seeking the truth. This is a trial where they're seeking the death of Jesus, whether or not there was evidence. And we see that borne out in these false witnesses, verse 56. For many bore false witness against him. You can almost imagine the religious leaders kind of taking a few individuals aside and coaching them. This is what you need to say, okay? Say it this way, and, then, and that, that'll be enough, right? And then they go out, and what happens? Their testimony didn't agree. It's, it's hard to have the same story when you're all lying. And so it's, it's, it's almost a laughable scene here, right? These, 
these meticulously scheming religious elites, and they can't even get their, their lying witnesses to agree. The whole thing was obviously a sham from the beginning. Verse 57, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, Jesus did say that. He was talking about the temple of his body, that he was going to die and be raised. But here these false witnesses are saying, well, it's kind of like a bomb threat scrawled on a, a middle school locker, right? He's, um, it's... Uh, Jesus is going to blow up the temple, right? He's going to burn it down or, or whatever. But even trying to twist words that Jesus had actually said, the witnesses couldn't agree. Verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And what did Jesus say? He remained silent and made no answer. Why? Because the whole thing was so obviously foolish. The high priests blowing a lot of hot air. What, do you, what answer do you make to these men? Right? As if their accusations were of any substance at all. Jesus doesn't even doesn't even honor them with an answer. The, the first thing that's revealed, the first truth that's revealed is actually about the trial itself. That it wasn't being conducted honestly. It was a sham from the beginning. That the trial was just an excuse to get rid of Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the scribes, they didn't actually believe they had a legal reason to get Jesus killed. They just wanted him out of the way. They were looking for an excuse to get rid of Jesus. Jesus was an inconvenience. He was in their way. He was a threat to their lifestyle, and they wanted him out. And it makes me wonder about people's reasons for rejecting Jesus. Because sometimes people will state one reason for not wanting to submit their lives to Christ, and underneath it is a deeper reason. Right? Name some intellectual problem with the scriptures or theology or something. Right? And very often underneath it, it's, I don't want to be inconvenienced by the reality of Jesus being the real deal. If I were to accept that as, as the truth, Jesus would come in and wreck my life which is what the Pharisees were saying, right? If, if, if they allowed Jesus to go on preaching like he was preaching, he would have pulled down their racket. And they saw it. They saw the writing on the wall. And they didn't want Jesus coming in and wrecking things. And I, I think often we can have that same sort of reaction with Jesus. It's a bit like um, a hoarder hiring a professional cleaner to come in. Right, and just stuff got, starts getting thrown out the windows, right? Stop it, that's my, that's my precious, right? Um, sometimes we're just looking for an excuse to keep Jesus from coming in and, and wrecking the lives that we've already made a wreck of. But I just wanna say, if that's you this morning, it's not worth it. 
it's actually worth it to allow Jesus in and start wrecking things and pulling down your, the, the idols in the temple. Right? It's really good to, to let the Lord clean house. Right? And, and maybe you've never let him in at all. Right? And, and, and t- today's the moment of salvation. Right? Repent. Confess to him. Lord, I... Let Jesus clean house. First thing that's revealed is that there's false motives all underneath this trial. It's a sham. It's just an excuse. Second thing that's revealed is the the true identity of Jesus. The high priest is keeping up his, his hot air blowing. Verse 61, he remained silent and made no answer, but again the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Apparently, the high priest had caught wind of what people were saying about Jesus, right? that he was the Christ, the Messiah. We've, we've talked about this word, right? That means the, the chosen one, the anointed one. This figure that was foretold through the whole Old Testament who's going to come and save the people and save the world and reign forever in God's kingdom. Well, Jesus, are, are you the Christ like they say you are? Will you own up to it in public? It's one of the interesting things about the Gospel of Mark, right? Jesus has alluded to his divinity. We have had Peter say explicitly, Jesus, I believe you're the Christ, right? But it's been a gradual process whereby people have slowly had their eyes open to see, oh, this is who Jesus is. And here at sort of the climax of his ministry, when he's finally put on the stand, Jesus, this is Jesus' clearest statement of his identity in the Gospel of Mark. Who is he? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's doing multiple things by saying, I am. First of all, he's saying, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I'm the one who's foretold. I'm here. He's saying, yes, I am the Son of the Blessed. I am the Son of God. He's doing more than that, right? Just by these two simple words, ego eimi in Greek. He was in a room full of Bible students. They knew exactly what he was doing. Flip with me if you'd like to Exodus chapter three. We'll just be here for a moment, but it's, it's worth reading. Exodus chapter three. You know this scene, Moses at the burning bush. And, Mo- and the Lord's preparing Moses to to free Israel from Egypt. And, and he's told him what he's supposed to say. But Moses has a question, Exodus 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God, what's your name? So I can tell, you who's, so I can tell him who sent me. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And he said, say, to this, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God's name is I am, right? abbreviated 
Yahweh in Hebrew, translated in our English Bibles, the Lord in the Old Testament in all caps. God is the I am. And what does that mean? It means he is. It means he's the one who is and always has been and ever will be. It means he's the eternal God who has no beginning and no end. He's the self-existent one. Everything that exists in this universe is either created or creator. There's God and then there's everything he made and nothing else, no other category. God has existed for all eternity. God is the I am. And this name was, was so holy. Um, we pronounce it Yahweh usually in English if we pronounce it that the Jews wouldn't even pronounce the name when they read it in the Old Testament. They'd say, Adonai, Lord, so that we actually don't know how the ancient Israelites would have pronounced it, that the pronunciation is gone. And so, back in the courtroom scene, we have Jesus here. They say, who, who are you, Jesus? Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? And he says, I am. I am, which would be easy to miss right? if, if, if we didn't know all this background. But we understand from that background and from the other Gospels that Jesus had a habit of saying, I am, in meaningful ways, right? He was pointing to who he was, that in front of this Jewish council who had staked their lives on God's word across the ages, right? Who staked their authority on the authority of the I am, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In front of this council was the I am. God in human flesh, right? The God who spoke at Sinai, the God who spoke from the burning bush in human flesh in front of them. Jesus is the I am, truly God, truly man. I am. That alone, they would have had serious problems with. A man claiming to be God. But he doesn't stop there. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We've actually already spent some time this month in the passage he's referencing, but you can turn back there with me if you'd like. Daniel chapter 7. Jesus' speech is rich with Scripture, rich with the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel's given this vision of one he describes like a son of man, which just means a human figure. One like a son of man. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And what, what did the son of man do? He came to the ancient of days, so he's going up to God's throne, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So in one sentence, Jesus lays claim 
to all the promises of the Old Testament, right? He says, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one who was foretold, I am the I am, God in the flesh, and I am the Son of Man who Daniel saw, right? I am the everlasting King who God will place on a throne and, whom I, and who will reign forever. And Jesus specifically speaks about the clouds, which again, we, we spoke about when we were in Mark 13, right? The clouds are God's chariot in the Old Testament. Just like a, a king would ride his chariot into battle, well, God rides the clouds into battle, right? He's the king of the heavens and the earth, so he, he rides the sky into battle. It's a sign of his power. And so here we see Jesus depicting himself as riding God's chariot into battle. I am, and you will see the Son of Man, talking about himself, seated at the right hand of power and then coming with the clouds of heaven. And this is almost a threat, right? You want to know who I am? I am the I am. And you personally will see me coming on clouds. There will be a day he's promising. You will see me coming on the clouds. And what do they do with this? What do they do with this? Jesus has told them the truth. This is the truth. That is who's standing in front of them, right? The God of Israel standing in front of Israel's judges. What will they do with him? They've got two options, right? Believe him or not. They could have believed him. They could have, if, if they'd actually believed that this was true, they would have been on their faces in the dust. They would have thrown their sandals off and gotten on the ground prostrate that they had brought their God to trial, that they had presumed to sit in judgment over the I am. That's not what they do. That's not what they do. They'd had their minds made up. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. He's a man claiming to be God. Simply not done. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. The other gospels tell us, they were saying, prophesy, tell us who kicked you. Who is that? Who is that? Which one spat on you this time, huh, prophet? And the guards received him with blows. First thing that was revealed, the truth that was revealed was that the trial was a sham. Second, the, the true identity of Christ. Third, the true hearts of these religious leaders. It's finally displayed. It's interesting, they thought they were sitting in judgment on Jesus. They thought that they were finally taking control of the situation, passing down a judgment that would get rid of him forever. In fact, in passing down this judgment, they confirmed about themselves what Jesus had been saying all along. Right, what had Jesus been saying? They're whitewashed tombs. They're just a shell of religion. 
They don't actually believe in God. They don't actually give a rip about God. They don't fear God. They just care about their position. They just care about their power. They care about extorting widows for their money. They're whitewashed tombs. They don't care about God. And then the I am comes before them. And what do they do? Crucify him. Get rid of him. He's a nuisance. And in bringing down this judgment, they actually heaped judgment on themselves. They confirmed in the court of the law what Jesus had been saying all along, that they had no fear of God before their eyes. Heavy stuff going on in that room. Outside, in the darkness, Peter, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. I love the scene here. It's the middle of the night. They've got some warming fires outside. The, probably, presumably the guards have set, the servants of the high priest. They're standing watch. And by firelight, a little girl comes up to Jesus. Hey, I recognize you. Maybe she'd been out with the mob and she'd seen Peter with Jesus. Maybe she'd seen Peter with Jesus on one of the days they were in the temple together. We don't know. She recognizes him. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Notice the parallel trials here. Jesus is on trial inside with the the most distinguished religious men of the day questioning him. Peter's outside on trial, and it's a girl. Jesus is on trial inside, standing firm. Peter's on trial outside, flopping over under the questioning of a girl. He denied it, verse 68, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I've got no idea what you're talking about. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him again and began again to say to the bystanders, this man's one of them. And again he denied it, withering under the prosecution of a little girl. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. They hear it in his voice. Yeah, you're from down east, for sure. You must be with Jesus. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. And I want you to notice, this is actually more vehemence than Peter displayed in his promise to Jesus the previous night. Remember, Jesus, well, it's earlier in the night. Hasn't, hasn't been a full day. Same night. Earlier in the night, Jesus had said, you're going to deny me three times tonight. Peter said, I would never do that. I would die with you, Jesus. I would die with you. He didn't swear on it. Here he swears on it. We're not told what he, what he swore by. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. He said, on, on the memory of my mother, whatever he said, I do not know this man of whom you speak on my honor. 
cross my heart and hope to die. I don't know him. Not just I don't believe in him, not just I, I'm not a follower of him, I don't even know who you're talking about. Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he broke down and wept. I imagine he probably walked off to find a dark corner and just got on his face, and he was just broken. Broken. This is the final truth that's revealed. The truth about Peter is that Peter was weaker than he thought. Peter was weaker than he thought. He had a lot of bravado the night before. Not a lot here. He broke down and wept. Peter was weaker than he thought. It's a great Christian song from the 80s. I can't remember the name of the the, uh, author, but the title is, We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. We are not as strong as we think we are. I think that's true. Of anyone in this passage, most of us can probably most identify with Peter. Most of us are are not living in outright rebellion against Jesus, trying to totally keep him out of the house. I think most of us can identify with Peter here when he finds out, ooh, not as strong as I thought I was. I think we all have moments like that. Maybe it's this week. Something happened, hits you in the face. You're like, I am not as strong as I thought I was. Lord, I am weak, aren't I? Mm. Amen. There's a lot of lessons to draw from this. One lesson we drew last week was the importance of prayer, right? Jesus telling Peter in the garden three times, pray lest you fall, pray lest you fall, pray lest you fall. Our strength comes from him if we're going to stand. That's important. I stressed that last week. I think there's more lessons to be drawn here, though. And I, I think this one's pretty profound, What if Peter had stood strong that night? What if Peter had been crucified with Jesus that night? What if Peter had been strong? The fact is, Jesus had to die alone. The fact is, none of us are as strong as we think we are. And the fact is, only Jesus was able to do what he had to do. And I think part of the reason that Jesus allowed Peter to fall here is so that none of us would be able to look back and see, oh yeah, Peter was there, Peter was strong too, right? Be easy to make a lot out of Peter. Some Christians make a lot out of Peter, right? Jesus said, You're, you are the rock, Peter. 
Petros, Peter the Rock Johnson, and on you I will build my church, right? It's big words. It's big responsibility. We could make a lot out of Peter. But Peter's here so that we can see that even Peter, one of the great apostles, was weak. When it came down to it, he was weak. We are not as strong as we think we are. And I think we need to see that transposed with Jesus' strength on the cross because we need to understand that Jesus died for us not when we were strong, but when we were weak. And that Jesus advocates for us not just when we're strong, but when we are weak. Christianity has never been about Christians being strong. It's about weak people trusting in a strong Savior. It's about insufficient people trusting in a sufficient Savior. It's never been about strong people, which is why I think Peter needed to be weak that night so that we can see him and see, this is the great apostle, and this is us. Because when Peter was weak, Christ was strong. When Peter flopped, Jesus stood firm and went to the cross nonetheless. Jesus didn't need Peter. Peter needed Jesus. And that's something to remind ourselves of. Look to Peter when we're hit by weakness, when we flop over and we're discouraged, when we're crumpled up in a corner on the ground like Peter was, right? It's not about our strength. It's about Christ. It's about his strength. Yet not I, but through Christ in me, right? It's never been about you, and that's a relief. It's about Christ. That's exactly what we're going to celebrate at the table here. If I could have Kevin come up. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And uh, I've said it again, but I think it's important to, to repeat The Lord's table is not about us coming together and saying, I have it all together. That is, if that's you, don't come. Table's not for you. This table is for weak people. Christ's table is for people who don't have it all together. Christ's table is for people who need Jesus. And as we take the bread, as we drink the cup, we lift it up and in effect say, I need Jesus. And not only I need Jesus, but he is enough. He is enough. In his broken body on the cross, that's enough for my forgiveness. His spilt blood on the cross, that's enough for my reconciliation. Jesus is enough. So that's what we say in the Lord's Supper. It's a gift to us, and it it should be a joy. It's solemn in some ways, right, because we're commemorating his death. Um, But um, as as one pastor has said, it's not a funeral service for a dead relative, right? Jesus is alive, okay? And so there's there's a sense of somberness, right? But Jesus rose from the dead. He's the king. We're proclaiming his death, but also his resurrection, his victory, right? And one day, we spoke about just a couple weeks ago 
Jesus will raise the cup again in his everlasting kingdom and we will, we will feast with him forevermore. I, I, I always like to mention the communion table. This is for weak people. This is for people who need Jesus. Um, but this is also for Christians. Right? So if you're, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, um, we'd actually ask that you refrain from the table for now. It's open to, to you if you would come to Christ, right? Um, but if, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you haven't made that profession publicly, we'd ask that you actually refrain from now. Because um, it, is, it is a serious thing to come to the table. Um, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, warns about, um, about the Lord's Supper. He said, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And he goes on to warn that actually in that congregation, some people had, had gotten sick and died because of their, their, their lack of reverence for the, the Lord's Supper. In the Corinthian church, they were eating a full meal, and some were actually eating all the food and getting drunk on all the wine, and, and there wasn't any left for the people who worked the late shift and had to come late. And so um, it, it's a serious thing what we're doing here. So just ask that you keep all that in mind. I want to read a couple verses from John, and then I'll have Kevin pray for the, as we eat the bread. John 6, beginning in 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It's a promise as you come to, remember that promise. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. Hold this joyful promise in your heart this morning that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen? Amen. Kevin, would you pray for us as we go to eat the bread?
Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ, our Savior, died, was risen from the dead, reigns now at the right hand of the Father, and he is coming again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.